I want to call your attention back to the second chapter of Titus, which is to call you back to our studies on the behavior of Christ's body. This is the fifth, and this afternoon we are going to take up the second part of the topic sobriety for all. So this is sobriety for all, as it were, number two, and naturally the fourth teaching in this series introduced the topic. And I'll remind you that the concept of sobriety for all is introduced, and one might even say rooted, in the first two verses, and the second verse in particular, in the instruction of the Holy Spirit to the elder men. In other words, the call to sobriety for all is rooted or founded or first introduced to the church when the Spirit of God addresses the elder men. And what that illustrates for us, dear brethren, is that as it was with the Ephesian church, it is very difficult, as it were, to get a church off the ground if there aren't some good men that the Lord has supplied to the meeting. And one of the characteristics of good men is sobriety. So we want to return to thinking about this topic and picking up where we were. Let's read the first two verses of Titus chapter 2. Titus is Paul's understudy. He is a young man who, to some degree, has been open to the mentoring of the Apostle Paul. I don't know exactly how old Titus is. I suppose he might not fit into the category of an old man himself, but evidently he is well on his way to filling those shoes with honor as he begins to get grayed up and whatever else happens in his particular circumstance, meaning some people lose a little bit of hair when they get older. I wouldn't be confessing that on you or me, but in any event, as Titus got a little bit older, he was getting to the place where he could represent the Apostle Paul. And so Paul tells him to speak thou the things which comport with sound doctrine, which are in harmony with sound doctrine. So we don't have this clinking sound, this sounding brass, this crashing cymbals of um, a church and its members having lots of ideas about the Bible, having an opinion on everything about religion, claiming to know God, claiming maybe to speak in tongues and things along those lines, but their behavior is substandard to say the least. That brings shame to the name of Jesus. That does not adorn the gospel of Christ. And so he is told to address the elder men, first of all, and exhort them to be sober, to be grave, to be temperate, to be sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Now, naturally, brethren, we're not going to reteach the first study. So I want to bring you to where we left off, and we were presenting to you the coordination between the application of the call to sobriety as it pertains to the physical dimension, one might say the biological dimension, as well as the spiritual, which means that older men 
are to set the example by not allowing themselves to be given to wine or alcoholic drink or any sort of substance abuse whereby they impair their judgment, they don't control their own spirit, they render the oversight of their emotions less capable of being monitored because of their abuse of alcohol or other substances. But we were also making the point that this call to sobriety also speaks to the control of one's spiritual life such that one does not abuse one's liberty, one does not abuse one's giftings or one's talents, that sort of idea. Now, I draw your attention, first of all, as we continue in our study, to Paul's statement to Timothy so that we can draw this parallelism, this association of the physical and the spiritual once again. The language I wish to bring to your attention is what Paul says to Timothy in the first epistle to him, the fifth chapter and the 23rd verse. Paul says, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and for thine often infirmities or weaknesses. Let's reflect on that passage. Observe with me that a young man by the name of Timothy has just received apostolic permission for drinking wine. That could very easily be abused. He just wrote to a man in the ministry that he could drink wine. But one needs to pay careful attention to the specific language of the Apostle Paul, and one hopes, and we know because of what Paul says about Timothy and other places, that Timothy was able to receive this direction, this liberty, in this case with literal wine, but it also manifests his spiritual capacity to not use liberty for an occasion of the flesh and begin to pour himself more and more of that intoxicating experience of getting apostolic permission so he could argue for doing this, that, or the other thing. The pastor said I could. The apostle said I could. I heard brother so-and-so on a tape say I could. And misusing the blessing and giftings that God presents to the church in terms of counseling or teaching or um, help in a certain direction and not staying sober-minded in those contexts. What I'm driving at here is the language that Paul uses is oino oligo. And the modifying term oligo is the word little. That is to say, that is in the Greek. And that is to say, that is what Paul said. And that is the point of this study. That he said, drink no longer water, but a little wine. And the assumption here is that he thought that Timothy would be able to handle that direction. That Timothy had the capacity for drinking wine for a specific reason. That too is significant. We'll get to that in a moment. But that Timothy would be able to take this instruction, 
have a little wine and keep it there. And what we're doing here is we're showing that an older man must learn to live in moderation. He must manifest the spiritual capacity, the strength of the control of his will and his actions to stay in the space of moderation in all things so that whatever comes that man's way is kept in its proper measure and also that it is entered into and it is exercised, whatever that liberty is, for very direct and self-conscious reasons that are stipulated by being in the interest of God's church. So in other words, what I'm driving at here, taking the physical situation that Paul was addressing as it relates to Timothy, mark it well that I'm not suggesting this should be allegorized in the case of Timothy. This was about a physical issue. And so Timothy was somewhere along the Mediterranean coast, and uh, evidently the water there was not agreeing with his stomach, and Paul thought it judicious to say, drink no longer water, that is in this context, in this season, but use a little wine. And no doubt that little wine had little fermentation relative to what some alcoholic drinks have. And why would we reason that? Because the point of drinking the wine was absolutely had nothing to do with getting intoxicated. There was a specific reason for having even a little wine. It was for his stomach. It wasn't for his enjoyment. It wasn't for just the experience. It wasn't just so he could have an emotional release or just because he personally has a liking for good French wine. It was for his stomach's sake and for his often sicknesses. That is, I'm sure they're coordinated that he had stomach problems because of the bacteria in the local water. And while I'm not digressing into ancillary topics one big one would be whether a Christian ever can consume any sort of fermented beverage. I'm not digressing into that. I'm aware of the literature. By and large, I'm aware of the different views. If I say anything about that topic, I am stating right now, I am not treating that topic in a technical fashion. I will say, however, for any who have the position that a Christian can never have anything approximating something fermented. Well, you're going to have to say that Paul was not being led of the Spirit when he instructed Timothy to do what we're reading about because it is in direct contrast to water. But again, it's a little wine. And the other big topic I'm not dealing with is you might say, well, why didn't he tell Timothy just lay hands on your tummy and pray over your tummy? I suppose because Timothy was going to stay in that region for some period of time. And there was a more biblical answer than just tempting the Lord and saying, no matter what the nature of the present situation in this fallen world is, I'm just going to ignore that when I could drink a little wine or brush my teeth or clean this wound or make sure I have enough vitamins as opposed to just claiming I'm going to be well or do a little exercise that for the long term I need to adjust my practices instead of 
always saying that heaven has to upset all the rules of life in order to help me get along from day to day. Well, in any event, I trust you see with me that this is the story of a minister of God with whom the water was not agreeing with him. Now, he had nothing against water. He was fine with water as such. But for whatever reasons, it wasn't agreeing with him at the time. And the apostle himself says, you can drink some wine. But on how many occasions has something like that been said from one of God's ministers to a church or to a person, and it becomes an excuse for abusing a liberty? And one passes over the entire context of that man's ministry. In this case, Paul said, a little wine for your stomach's sake, not to invite Timothy and Epaphroditus over and have a Christian cheese party with some wine. That's not what he said. For your stomach's sake, so that you don't have these infirmities, so you can serve Jesus' church more effectively. But I do think that we can take these concepts and we can see how that they run parallel with various spiritual observations. And I would say briefly and somewhat allegorically, but very much to purpose, that as it relates to older men, older men need to learn how to drink liberty with moderation. If the apostle was speaking to Timothy, as no doubt he did, about some aspect of his ministry that Timothy was being given permission to operate in, then the instruction would be the same. Drink a little bit of this. Stay in control of what you're doing. I'm bequeathing or delegating a little bit of authority to you. And maybe it is for your stomach's sake. I'm not entirely sure how we should think this all through, but I certainly have prayed over this message, and therefore I feel that there is some sense to the application that I will make, and it is the following. I understand that when God regenerates a man, or a woman for that case, but we're speaking about older men, when God regenerates a man, and in particular when he fills that man with his Holy Spirit, and if that man has a genuine love for God, then there is a well of living water springing up within that individual that wants to do something, wants to serve the Lord, wants to be a man of purpose. And maybe the bland nature of that man's life, as it generally is experienced, is not satisfying. You know, he wants a little more than water. One could think about that, and one could say, before you ever can handle even a little bit of wine, you better make sure you're satisfied just with the water of the regenerative experience God has given you, the salvation that God has granted you. Do you remember Jesus' words to his own disciples? Don't rejoice that you have the power to cast out demons. First, not first, rejoice that you're regenerate. Because John did no miracle. And he was the greatest among men that are born of women. So if you're following this analogy, I'm saying if somebody's stomach, if an older man's stomach needs some sort of activity in order to feel satisfied because there's a stirring, there's a yearning. And I'm trying to say that there's some legitimacy to that. If any man desires to be a pastor, he desires a good work, the Bible says, covet earnestly the best gifts. But I hope you're hearing that I'm saying this is for that kind of stomach's sake, 
not the stomach that seeks its own. As we heard in the scripture reading today, for all men seek their own, not the things that are Jesus Christ. Their God is their belly. If your God is your belly, if you simply want attention, if you're just churned up in your stomach in the way that Simon Magus was, I want to have some sort of power myself. I want to get the attention myself. Then an apostle who has a true calling will not even suggest you receive a little bit of the wine of service in God's kingdom because he knows it would destroy you. And in the process, it would also injure his church. So the principle is fairly straightforward, dear brothers and sisters. I hope you will meditate on it and take it to heart. It is a little wine for all of us, a little liberty. Stay moderate wherever you are in the service of God. This is a mend in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Because it says, even in the context of the things of the Spirit, do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now it obviously makes no sense whatsoever. If Paul is advising the body of Christ that they should not turn to wine and alcoholic beverages or any sort of substance or, for that matter, any sort of external influence, including music or the way in which the church is decorated, external trappings and the like. He is saying, do not turn to those things where you're using those things to excess. That is to say, they are being used to excess when they are taking the place of the the legitimate leading of the Spirit of God, the true and pure empowering of the Holy Spirit. When one is drunk with wine, one is out of control of what God has told you to stay in control of, and that is your mind, your body, your emotions, your behavior. And I'm stating to you that If we're thinking of this along the parallel application of sobriety in the things of the Spirit, it obviously makes no sense to be in the things of the Spirit and to fail to heed the admonition, don't go into excess. And yet, one feels quite alone, at least presently, in the climate of our times. I wouldn't say that I feel lonely, because I walk with the Lord Jesus and I have you as my brothers and sisters in Christ. But I'll be honest with you, when I look out in what we will call, for lack of a better way of designating it, I'll call them this, the non-cessationist confessing part of Christianity. That is to say, the charismatic or the Pentecostal churches out there. What I'm stating is so much of what I see that claims to be spirit-filled, and many of them don't even have the classic experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. They have nothing except the excesses of various forms of drunken behavior, spiritually speaking, that they blame on the Spirit of God. And there's virtually no sobriety from the way they dress to the way that their churches are appointed, that is to say, the way that they're decorated, the decor, to their music, 
to their doctrine, to the way in which they interact with the sheep. That is to say, their members are not called to sobriety. So what I'm stating is they are not supposed to be drunk with wine wherein is excess. I'm not so sure that in these situations there aren't members that are often drinking too much alcohol. I don't see myself into these churches naturally, but a little bit of experience enables one to recognize that when you are not living under the transforming power of the Holy Spirit through straightforward teaching that is exhorting you, if nothing else, add to your faith virtue and cut the nonsense out when that is not being taught. And when people go to their football games and go to their card playing games and when they spend time with their buddies on the golf course, they're drinking all too often. But what I'm stressing here is Yes, I am charismatic, if we're going to use that term. I don't mind it, it just has such a bad association. I am Pentecostal in the sense that I believe that the experience that occurred in Acts chapter 2 is to me and to my children and to my children's children and to as many as the Lord our God shall call and those that are afar off, whether that's far off in time or far off in location. That is the central promise of the new covenant. I won't digress into supporting that topic. But what I will state is when one receives the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that is a liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But you're not to use that liberty to excess. That is not an excuse for ceasing to be sober-minded and to enter into what I've seen even recently, for example, under the ministry of Rodney Howard Brown, more of this nonsense expressions of supposed movings of God that is just the sort of repeat that goes on and on and on in the supposed charismatic churches. It is highly unbiblical. And if John MacArthur doesn't like it, I can tell you, nor do I. But I do speak in other language supernaturally as the Holy Spirit gives me utterance because the baptism in the Holy Spirit is to be experienced by the believer. Jesus said he's with you as he spoke to his disciples who were regenerated, but he shall be in you, which means they did not have that experience yet. They got it in the upper room. So I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, I don't want to digress into this, but may I state to all my Reformed brothers and sisters in Christ who, like I, respect greatly the minister and ministry of John Calvin, among other Reformed. Most of what I read, I suppose, I don't know if that's literally true, but a great deal of what I read is Reformed literature. Look, let me just state this and I'll get back to my topic. Didn't mean to digress here. If I had no choice but to choose between a conservative Reformed church and what passes all too often for a charismatic church these days, and I will give the name again, like a Rodney Howard Brown, or like a Kenneth Copeland, if I had to choose between those two church experiences, expressions, in a heartbeat, I would choose the conservative Reformed church. But I don't have to, because nobody handed me simply the bylaws of different churches, and then said, choose which way you want to follow Jesus. I was handed a Bible when I was saved at 17. In fact, at first, 
I didn't have an entire Bible. It was dear Sister Jan, my mother in the Lord. She gave me an entire Bible, which I very quickly used so much that it completely fell apart. But what I'm trying to state is, if you're a Reformed individual, Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever, I just said, I highly respect John Calvin. I've read his institutes. There's probably a number of Reformed people that haven't even read his institutes. I've read them. I'm not going to boast of some degree of understanding of them. I'm going to qualify that, but I think I have a decent grasp on Reformed theology and greatly appreciate it. But what I'm saying is, you know, my Reformed friend, that there are groups that we call hyper-Calvinists, which is to say they take the essence of the Calvinistic message on the doctrines of grace of the sovereignty of God, and contrary to the advice of a good author like J.I. Packer, at least when he talks about many things, I'm not saying I'm limiting the usefulness of J.I. Packer, that's not my point, but I'm zeroing in on when he talks about evangelism in the sovereignty of God, he is in some senses directly addressing the abuses of hyper-Calvinism that act like there's no point to evangelize if all we have are they who have been either elected to eternal life or elected to reprobation for eternity and you're not going to change anything. And you just reduce everything down to those concepts and you've got nothing else to say. That's called hyper-Calvinism. And any well-trained, reformed man or woman understands there is such a thing as a hyper-Calvinist. And they distance themselves from the hyper-Calvinists. Those that get out of balance, they're not sober-minded, they're not biblically-minded. Well, then you should grant the same generosity to those of us who believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We believe in praying for the sick. We believe in casting out demons. We believe that God answers unbelievable prayers. That is to say, remarkable prayers that you wouldn't believe that He would answer. I believe He would, but the ones you don't. And we call those miracles sometimes. In other words, we don't have to rip up any part of our Bible or say it doesn't apply any longer. And I'm talking especially about the New Testament. It is normative Christian living, or should be. And what I'm saying is, if like with Calvinists, there are what we could call hyper-charismatics or hyper-Pentecostals, or those who, by reason of whom the way of truth is evil spoken of, and if you know your Bible, I'll let you tell me where that comes from, that statement. I know where it comes from. The way of truth can be evil spoken of by those who take up the truth but abuse it. So, I agree with you. There's a lot of abuse in the charismatic confessing church world. And there has been for many, many decades, actually. And so why don't you point out the abuses like Paul did to the Corinthians and then after you're done say, but do not forbid to speak in tongues and covet to prophesy. And obviously prophecy is not the same thing as preaching. But if I get off into all of that, we'll be way beyond what we're supposed to focus on today. So I just want to say, as it relates to this teaching, we should have churches where there are older men that are able to pray in the Spirit, I mean pray in tongues, in our prayer meetings, where that is edifying, because we're not trying to minister at that point to everybody. We're praying to God. And we pray in English, 
And we also intercede in tongues because that's perfect prayer in the Holy Spirit. We should have men that can pray in tongues. We should have men that are anointed like Barnabas, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, that bring forth prophecies and are used of the Lord in mighty ways, maybe to lay hands on the sick. Don't forget, Stephen worked miracles. And what was he? A deacon. He took care of tables. Do you understand? He didn't stand up and say, I just worked a miracle. I should take the church over now. That's not sober mindedness. The churches of Jesus Christ need godly, solid men who love their wives, who love their children, who love their pastors, and who know how to be in the Spirit and exercise a gift if their stomach yearns for it, if I may so say, but they don't go to excess. They are able to take a little wine, and when they feel it, when you feel that liberty, you have to know, I can't pour myself another drink. You know, I shared a song earlier today, and we all, since we have body-led worship, where each member leads out in a song and we join in, so that the Spirit of God is orchestrating our worship. And I've said before, again, there aren't rules to this. That's the whole beauty of liberty. And I'm not suggesting anybody violates this. No one's violating it presently, as far as I'm aware. But what I am stating is, you notice that I didn't sing one song, and then two songs, and then three songs, and then four songs. And, and why shouldn't I? Because I'm feeling, well, that one went well, which I'm not saying I did or didn't. Well, I'm on a roll now, so let's go. I'm saying, if the Lord anointed, and you sang a beautiful song, be in control. Imagine a world where the men actually live out their role to be the head in the most important callings that they have. I said to a brother once when I was counseling in the context of a marriage challenge and he was stating that he should be the head of the home. And I said, well, you don't want to be the head of the home. And he thought that was either comical or offensive. I'm not quite sure, just confusing because that was his whole, you know, his whole presentation. That was his whole identity. But I, I reminded him of Ephesians chapter 5 and other places and said, then you set the example of what it is to die out to self and to manifest the fruits of the Spirit. You go first and go first for a few months. How many times is it in modern churchianity where it takes the wife to show the husband how to be a half-decent Christian? And maybe after months and years, he might catch on. I'm not here kicking anybody's shins, brothers and sisters. I'm here sharing the word of God. And I'm saying, you wonder why the churches are in the condition they are. It's because the older men are not sober. And I'm the first to say, thanks be to God for his unspeakable grace for saving such a wretch as I. But I am also saying, don't frustrate the grace of God. The grace of God is as powerful for males as for females. So why isn't it working as obviously in the males? It must be because they're frustrating the grace of God. So we're not condemning anybody, but we are saying, why don't you start yielding to the grace of God and see if it will make a change in your life? Because if it doesn't, after several months, you're probably not saved. I mean, we just had the experience not that long ago of someone who came to me and said, they're repentant. They want to come back to church. They want to walk with God. And you can't make this up. 
but I'm going to tell you the story anyway. That particular individual, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, he's a young man, meaning emphasis on man. He's not a child. That individual came to the meeting and he heard the behavior of Christ's body number four. You can go back and listen to that on your own if you wish, but it's very much along these lines. And before he could even get back to church, even though he was encouraged by myself lovingly and welcomingly, and others did as well, before he could even get back to church, he decided that he would go play cards and drink and got drunk and had some altercations and so on. And what I'm saying is, you better, either that individual or anybody else similar to that story, you better start yielding to the work of God's grace to see if it makes some change in your life over a few months. Because if it doesn't, you aren't saved. And maybe that doesn't bother men any more than it bothered Lucifer to be in opposition to God and go ahead and fight with God, thinking you're stronger than he, as Paul once warned the Corinthians, but you're going to find out that you should have listened. I mean, I can't think of a more drunken status. I don't care how sober you are biologically, physiologically. I can't think of a more drunken mindset than to be in open opposition to God, especially when he's granting you grace and mercy day after day after day. And you're a male? I know it's not fashionable in our time, but I'm saying you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Men are supposed to set the example. Men are supposed to show young ladies what it's like to be in control of your heart and mind and emotions and actions so that we don't have silly women doing silly things. That isn't discounting the fact that there are women who fear God that will walk faithfully anyway. I, I didn't say that they can't walk without the example of godly men, but I'm saying it was Adam's responsibility to stay sober. And he failed when he was offered the sin. And I'm saying it's our responsibility, older men. And in any situation, again, let me just emphasize where there is a church, you know, where there are heads of homes, we should have the testimony that we have a church of however many men there are. Let's say there's 12 like in Ephesus, or 12 apostles. Think of the apostles. We could just digress on this and keep talking. You know what I mean? Think how the church was built upon 12 good men. And they all had personalities. They all had varying backgrounds. But somehow they found a way to carry out Christ's commission and strive together for the faith of the gospel. And they even had to deal with Paul popping in. You know? All of a sudden, number 13, if you want to call him that, pops in and is being even more used of God than some of they were. And they weren't Saul because they hadn't sinned against God, but there's a sense in which God put an anointing on Paul that maybe others didn't have at the same level. Something like David was experiencing, you remember? You know, he was killing Goliath and Saul was jealous of that. Well, we go back to your stomach's sake. If you need more ministry... For your stomach's sake, for that reason, because you just cannot stomach anybody else having more attention than you. Maybe he's younger, maybe he's older, I don't know what it is. You know, you have your reasons of what stirs you up. Saul could not stomach the fact that 
David was winning battles. And by the way, Saul didn't want to fight the battles. He wasn't fighting them effectively. He didn't know what to do. And when David showed up and took on the Philistines, he didn't speak evil of Saul. Not at any great length. He might have said, what in the world is going on around here? Which he did. But he didn't carry on a narrative against Saul. He never did, ever. Even after Saul died, he had a eulogy on him. How have the mighty fallen? Do you see what I'm saying? It was all on Saul's side. And the point is, is if Saul had a legitimate desire in his heart to serve God, that was what was troubling him. He saw an anointing going David's way and he thought to himself, well, what's going to become of me? I'm getting older now and I kind of messed up, but I still want to do something for the Lord. Maybe it's a little bit like Esau. You have to really watch these things. Because he's saying, bless me, bless me, bless me. That's not repentance. That was, I want a blessing. Not that I'm sorry for my sin. That isn't sober. So what I'm saying is, if it's because you still want to serve the Lord, and I actually think that's wonderful. As the Lord manifests marriages and brings husbands into the churches, Assuming, as is no doubt the case, as I've seen throughout my ministry, that often the husbands aren't walking with the Lord in the way that the wives are. So I want to look out to a positive vision of the men being saved and repented and coming back to the churches and wanting to be used of the Lord. What I'm saying is, heed this admonition. Get some of the Spirit in moderation. Use a little wine to solve that stomach yearning, if that's legitimate. But if you just can't stomach anybody else being used of the Lord, that's a whole different story. And that also, of course, is not being sober. Well, I've sort of wandered around a little bit, but we're tying some thoughts together in this study. I want to point out to you that it's very obvious that not only Timothy, but Jesus seems pretty clear to me that he was able to be moderate with alcohol. You might not know where I'm getting that, but if you go to Luke chapter 7 and beginning in verse 33, we have a contrast that is set up. And certainly it is the remarks of ungodly critics. So maybe it's a bit askew, but they talk about John the Baptist and Jesus is referring to the statements of the Pharisees and the Sadducees or whoever, the religious leaders, the critics. And he's saying, John the Baptist came, in verse 33 of Luke 7, not eating bread or drinking wine, and you said he has a devil. And then he says, the Son of Man is come eating and drinking. And evidently, he's not referring simply to water, because they go on to accuse him of saying, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine bibber. Or as one translation has, an eater and a wine drinker. Or even another translation has, he eats too much and he drinks too much wine. Now that's a false accusation. But for the purpose of this study, what I'm saying is evidently, I mean it's right there on the page, evidently Jesus drank wine. But obviously he drank a little wine. And that as well gives you an insight into the beauty of Jesus' person. The beauty of Jesus' person is he had the spirit without measure, brothers and sisters. He is the son of God. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. I mean, he had puny little Pharisees and 
sad little Sadducees pecking at the God of the universe. I don't know if you understand that I'm making a good point, but I'm trying to tell you he kept his own. He controlled his spirit. He did not even begin his public ministry until he was 30 years old. And he went where the father sent him. He said what the father told him to say. When his mother said, let's do a miracle, he said, Mom, my time is not yet. She pressed a little more. And obviously he had an illumination from the father by the spirit. Yes, I know Jesus himself is God taken on flesh, but he walked in his human nature, in dependence on the Spirit of God. And the Spirit said, it's okay. And so he performed the miracle. But are you hearing what I'm saying? He didn't jump at the opportunity to display his power. And when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda successfully, he didn't start a ministry campaign of the five porches and start lining them up. But how many men in ministry do you know? Or how about yourself? Would you be able to go, let's say, to a hospital? The Lord sends you to go to a particular room, somebody you know, pray for them, and they get healed. Do you know that you're supposed to go up and down the hallways and heal everybody? You might say, well, I'd, I wish I would have the boldness to do that. Well, if it's a matter of the Lord's will and you need the boldness, then I would wish that for you too. But part of how you're going to walk with the Lord is to stay sober-minded. What makes you think that you're supposed to go up and heal everybody up and down the aisles? What, you got intoxicated with one assigned task that God gave you. Stay sober-minded. If the Lord wants you to go up and down the halls, and you're a servant of the Lord, if not on that occasion, probably on that occasion, but if not on that occasion, you'll learn. I've been in circumstances when I've been outside of the Lord's will, and He's shown me, or maybe missed doing something I should have, and He's shown me, it works both ways. So you're refined. But I feel like at the end of the day, by His grace, I've done a lot better in maintaining a sober mind than just letting all my intoxicated brethren that are out there drinking far too much in the Spirit telling me as they're tipsy and they're not even walking the straight and narrow way and they can't even speak well, even in English. They don't quote the scriptures sensibly. They're all over the map with respect to their biblical ideas. Telling me I'm supposed to go out and cast out every demon and heal everybody that says they want to be healed. And it doesn't even matter if they have faith. It doesn't even matter if they're regenerate. Just go out in the parks and just start tapping people on shoulder, on their shoulders and saying, would you like God to heal you? And then play the psychological game on them and some percentage will fall forward or just they're bored, they want to do something and then we'll claim it's a mighty move of God. Revival is now, as one popular female minister is presently claiming. Revival is now. Proverbs 20 in verse 1 makes a statement about wine that relates to what it will do to you but what it is simultaneously stating is if you are the one who cannot control the use of wine, then you need to personify wine in your mind and in your understanding because the devil is using that wine. So behind that wine is a person who is using that wine to make you into the thing that you become. Let me untangle that. 
Proverbs 20 says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. The reason why one can say that is because when people get too much wine, they start mocking. I've personally experienced that from drunk people. When people get too much wine, they become angry and agitated often and raging. Strong drink brings about a raging disposition. But when the remainder of the proverb says, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise, it is saying to the person who can't understand what this will do to them, that they should personify the wine in their own minds when they look at the bottle, when they consider going out to the bar, which you shouldn't be doing, obviously, as a Christian, but in any context where you would be taking substances into your body that alter your emotions and the control of your will and posture, what I'm trying to say is, you should think of wine itself as a mocker. Wine is an entity that mocks. Strong drink is virtual raging. And if you don't realize that, and you just take it in as innocent beverage, then you are going to be deceived by it, and you will become what it is. And this applies as well to liberty. You know, the Bible says... That if a man desires the office of a pastor, he desires a good work. But it also says he should not be a novice, or he might fall into the condemnation of the judgment of the devil. And his judgment was that he tasted his anointing and saw his presence and experienced his power, and he got intoxicated with his ministry as the covering cherub. And he was deceived deceived by it. And so the world has a saying. It says power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. If you happen to be the sort of person that has a record of not being able to handle liberty and being granted a sphere of authority without abusing that opportunity, if you have a pattern of having whatever giftings are your particular giftings, but not keeping them in the service of God and submitting them to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then you need to personify those things in your relationship. You need to look, some need to look at their musical instruments and see them as instruments that are prideful in themselves. That guitar is a bundle of pride. That piano, that drum set is pride. And if I pick up those sticks, it's going to deceive me. And as is said with wine, wine is a mocker. Well, I'm using this spiritually. It is the same sort of principle. If you can control the liberty, you need to realize that there is a personality Behind these opportunities, there are spirits of pride, spirits of religiosity that are seeking to bring you into excess. If you can't control the opportunities that God allows in your life, then you need to not look at these things in such a warm way.
you should be a little fearful of them. And that would go a long way. If people were a little more fearful of alcoholic drink, if they saw that bottle as a mocker, before they started drinking it and became a mocker themselves, if they saw it as mocking them, then they would not be as readily deceived. And what I'm trying to state is it's a wise individual who is granted some opportunity and fears it and says, I see that opportunity as a source of pride. I see that opportunity as maybe destroying me. I, I, I don't want to take that in very readily. And so we can speak of bodily sobriety as not being deceived by wine. That's our definition for bodily sobriety, not being deceived by wine. And we could define spiritual sobriety as not being deceived by liberty. And that deception, by the way, is seduction, isn't it? I mean, it is deception, but it comes in the mode of seduction. If you're going to stay spiritually sober you have to resist the seductive feel and draw and beauty of the liberty, you know, that, that place of liberty that you can function and operate and do your thing in. You know what I'm saying? Like, it would be very weird to you if I started prancing around up here on the slightly elevated platform that is just for the use of seeing me a little bit better in the back rows once they're filled. But what I'm trying to state is, you know as well as I do, if you watched any television over the years or you watched YouTube or whatever, there are plenty of ministers that prance around in their white or yellow suits with their plexiglass pulpits and, you know, a range of other things. And I'm not suggesting that we should become, you know, critical of everybody and just be judgmental and dismissive. So I certainly don't want that to be the response in your soul, but you could ask yourself, does this tend towards sobriety or not? I mean, could you not still teach the Word of God and train up the church without all this extraneous fanfare? Is it not somewhat distracting? In other words, they don't see these things as mockers, as raging, or as vehicles of the flesh that's because they're not sober-minded. Do you hear what I'm saying? A sober-minded man sees the possibilities and he defends himself against going in that direction. He will do things purposely. Purposely. You do a number of things purposely so you don't draw too much attention to yourself. You don't hear too many accolades. You don't spend too much time in the limelight. That's a man who knows how to be sober. Well, I hope to be able to carry on this afternoon with some further observations. I want to point out that given all of these truths that, roughly speaking, state that we do have liberty, but we are not to use our liberty for an occasion of the flesh. We have to stay sober with liberty. I want to point out to you that... Given these truths, there are two primary biblical directives that we need to pay attention to. The first is we need to pay attention to the personal prohibition that the scriptures bring to our lives, and particularly older men. 
you have a personal prohibition. That is to say, you are supposed to be in control of your own spirit and your own life. No one else, not the pastor, not the elders of the church, not your children, not your wife, not your dog. No one is supposed to have to make sure that you stay in control of your emotions, your, your actions, and so on. And this is given to us, among other places, in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 11. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. As this relates to literal alcohol, this speaks of someone who is in a state of incessant inebriation, which is to say it is a character trait. They get up early in the morning, and the first thing they're thinking about is the bottle. The first thing they're thinking about is the feeling that dissipated a little bit simply because they got some rest, and their body kind of evened out, and they're lacking that stimulation that alcohol brings, and the first thing they reach for is the bottle. This is an addiction. This is a bondage. But this is also a sin. And it is something God warns us against. Because day by day, you might start off just a little tipsy as you reach for that early morning drink. But as night comes, you're inflamed. And that time period, depending on what we're thinking about, could be a literal 24-hour day. But as we transition into the spiritual application, this is an individual whose character trait is, this one always needs to have the me and the stimulation of my liberty and my ways and my thoughts and my feelings active and others paying attention to it and has to feel that importance. You know what I'm saying? It's the sort of thing where life gets too bland if you rest for a while and just become one of us. Just another number in the innumerable number of the saints. You know how many there are? No, you don't. And nor do I. But it's millions and millions and millions. And guess what? You're just one. And probably not the most important. If you haven't figured that out yet, I'll guarantee you you're not the most important. You say, how can you do that? Well, oh boy, you know, do you need me to say, thus saith the Lord? If I had to gamble on a thus saith the Lord when I actually don't have an anointing and I didn't want to do something that really wouldn't turn out to be thus saith the Lord, I'd take the gamble there for you and me. I'd say, thus saith the Lord, you are not the most important one in the millions and millions and millions and millions and millions that God has graciously saved. You're just another one. And so I'm saying... You wake up in the morning, you feel like in my home, as it relates to my church, as it relates to my business, as it relates to life in general, as it relates to my neighbors, as it relates to my dog, nobody pays attention to me enough. Nobody realizes what I have. Nobody knows my powers. And so you reach out while you're still in bed, thinking, planning, musing, struggling with why isn't anybody sensing the fermentation, the beautiful Beauty of my bouquet. Why it's so lovely in the cup. The year I was born was a very good year. And others should taste who I am. If this sounds personal, 
It's only because it's so applicable to so many circumstances. It's just so genuinely the case. And what I'm saying is, that's a character trait. That's incessant inebriation. That's an addiction. And Christianity is supposed to solve that problem. When you get regenerate, God plants you in an entirely different hill with an entirely different strain or type of vine. The life principle is entirely new. It comes from heaven. You are now, according to John chapter 15, you are a branch in the vine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the life, the juices, the sap that goes up into that, from that vine into those branches is not teaching you to be drunk with yourself. It's teaching you to be humble, to be lowly in mind, to decrease so that he can increase. The Lord has showed thee, O man, in that very grace, that relationship with God, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with the Lord. And so if after all of that, God comes past the life of the older men, and what does he find? But wild grapes, wild behavior, wild ideas, wild music, wild dress, wild relationships, lacking sobriety in so many directions. I can tell you that God has already made the case in Isaiah chapter 5. You can look it up on your own. Verses 1 through 7, it's not his fault. He didn't plant this. It's your addiction. And if you are regenerate, you need to deal with it. You need to deal with it spiritually. Maybe it's a matter of deliverance. But you can't just blame it all on demons, by the way. Let me just say that. But in other words, let's just say for this study, it isn't God's fault. He doesn't plant that into the regenerate man. And I would also state, please don't say, well, I'm just a man. So many men are that way. You're not supposed to be just a man. If you're still just a man, then we'll change the message to a message of salvation so that all things can be new. I'm very serious. You're not supposed to be just a man or just a woman for that sake. You're supposed to be new in Christ Jesus. You say, well, what about the old man? Put it to death. Put it to death. Now you have the strength to put it to death. You say it shows up here and there. Yep, we know that. I'm not making fun of that. And when it shows up, mortify the old man. Crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts. Put it to death. Don't drink of it. Don't pour yourself more of it. So there is a character trait that does not practice personal prohibition. And it's given to us in Psalm 36, for example. This is a character trait of the wicked. You understand when we're talking about the wicked, we're talking about that's a character trait. David says, the transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flattereth himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be hateful. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He hath left off to be wise and to do good. He deviseth mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not evil. Now, the prohibition in, in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 11 was addressing those that rise up early in the morning to drink. 
And this is the spiritual counterpart to that. Here's someone who from morning to night is flattering himself in his own eyes. And as the statement goes, though such a one is not aware of it, this activity goes on and this behavior just bubbles up. You know how you put too much sugar in grape juice, you're going to ferment it. Well, when you put too much sugar in your soul about how sweet you are and how wonderful you are and all these ideas, how important you are, and nobody understands the Bible or politics or culture like me, you know, you just put all this sugar in your soul, it's going to start fermenting and you spend all your time, even while you're in bed. I'm not making this up. You say, do you know this is true? Of course I do. It's in the Bible. I know, even when you're in bed, you're flattering yourself. You're thinking about all the ways that you're so smart and all the ways that everybody else is so wrong. And you're getting drunk on this to the point where your iniquity is found to be revolting. King James is hateful, but it's really not blessing anybody. I mean, I might be telling on myself when I say, have you ever seen anyone who's so wrapped up in themselves? They're not even aware of it. It's just shameful. I hope I'm not, but the reason why I use myself is the whole point is someone who's doing that isn't aware of it. They don't even realize they're going on and on doing whatever they're doing and they don't even realize that you're not edifying. This isn't blessing me or anybody else. Spiritually, this is like what Peter describes, the one that cannot cease from sin, the one who has eyes full of adultery and cannot stop it. I'm trying to draw an analogy for your hearts that is from the Word of God, brothers and sisters. What we're saying here is the Bible is exhorting each of us, older men in particular, elder brothers in particular, you are supposed to practice personal prohibition. If we get to it today, you will also see that the Bible exhorts all of us to practice public prohibition, which is to say, in a word, we are not supposed to go buy your liquor. We are not supposed to pour you another drink. It doesn't matter how you argue that you deserve this attention or you have the authority to tell me to go buy you some alcohol because you're the pastor of the church or I'm your father or I'm your husband. And so you need to pour me another drink and acknowledge my greatness. The Bible, we'll get to it, the Bible warns us against doing that. You will be held to account if you help people get drunk. Literally drunk on alcoholic beverages or spiritually drunk through your carnal flattery. I give you that preamble in case we don't get to that all today. But I want you to hear this prohibition against that backdrop. What I'm stating is, older men are not supposed to need other people to keep them sober. You are to keep yourself sober. Don't wake up in the morning and start pouring yourself either literal literal alcohol or spiritual intoxication about your importance. Don't pray and be thinking about all the ways you're supposed to advance today. Where is my place? When does anybody pay attention to me? Wake up and pray for God's kingdom. 
Pray for Jesus church. Pray for God's ministry. Pray and say, I don't care if there's nothing for me to do that catches anyone's attention. If I can simply serve you, Father, then I am at complete peace. All I need is the living water of Jesus Christ and my salvation. That's all I need. I don't need the intoxication of religiosity and attention. Do you understand? I don't need, in that sense, my stomach isn't churning and churning within me, and I feel sick because all I have is bland water. All I have is my Bible. All, of I, all I have is my daily routine. If we want to draw the sisters in at this moment, all I have is my family and the dishes and maybe some homeschooling or some sewing or some, for, some photography or cleaning homes or whatever. That's all I have. I need something a little more bubbly. Says who? Where's that coming from in your stomach? Is there a true Holy Spirit anointing in you that's saying, I want you to care for this invalid girl down the street? Okay, well, if that's the case, then praise the Lord. Then in that, you'll stay sober because you'll take a little bit of that in and you'll serve the Lord where he wants you to serve. If there's some neighbor down the street that needs some help and God is calling you to minister to that and share the word with them or whatever, but you won't tell your husband, this isn't happening by the way, but I'm just making a point. You won't tell your husband, I have a new ministry now. Or tell the church, I have a new ministry now. Or make the other sisters feel like because you're looking after an invalid down the street that you're more spiritual. And say, just stay sober. Okay. So you're doing something that God has called you to do. All right. What are we supposed to do? Make a plaque for you? Amen, brothers and sisters. This isn't sarcasm. This is telling all of us, Let's stay sober-minded, because I'll show you eventually. I'm just trying not to give it all away right now, because I think it still is purposeful to work through the content. And if it takes another teaching, that's just the way it goes. That's, I'm going to be sober enough not to get all upset about that. I like them to be in one or two teachings, but it doesn't always work that way. But what I'm saying is, learning the difference between the moving of the Spirit and the true, beautiful life-altering inner change that the Spirit of God brings when He's there and He's working in your soul, in your mind, in your emotions, and it is changing you. It's moving you. You might laugh. I don't have a problem with laughing, even laughing quite a bit. I don't have a categorical problem with that. You might laugh. You're not going to bark like a dog, but you might laugh, or you might weep, or you might, like David, dance for joy. Or to use more long-term expressions of this, it could be the move of God in revival, in preaching, or in ministering to the sick, or casting out demons, and it's going on for some lengthy period of time. I'm trying to say that the churches need to be able to distinguish between, I'm not going to call it the wine from heaven because... That sort of is messing up the point I'm trying to make. But what I'm saying is in the language of the scriptures, which says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit. I'm saying that, yes, there is an experience of the spirit of God coming upon the church in times of worship, just in times of divine approximation when God draws near. And there's the experience of the Spirit of God giving you a particular understanding in the Word or ministering to your soul or using you to pray for someone and you feel that power surge through you. There is 
a truth along those lines, brothers and sisters. But we have to distinguish between that and the stirrings of the flesh, the stirring of religious spirits, the stirring of our own lusts and desires for our own attention. And again, something that satisfies our own sense of lack so that we stir something up. You know, we haven't had a revival very recently in Asbury, so I guess we have to have one. So let's manufacture a revival, and we'll sell it as the real thing of God. Oh, you say, that sounds awfully critical. Well, it's critical. I don't know if it's awfully critical. It isn't intended to be categorical as it relates to the Asbury revival, as it's called. But many people have pointed out that you can just about time when the next revival is going to come because they have it around this time of year every so often. You say, well, why couldn't that be God? Well, it could be God, but maybe it isn't. Not in entirety, not even maybe substantially. Again, God may use it to bring the gospel to somebody. That's not really saying much. I don't know if you understand that or not, but that's not really saying much. God could use something the Pharisees say to save somebody. I mean, or at least to teach them some truth of morality. Like, you should fast twice in the week. It's not a bad idea. Could change your life, if that's what you needed to learn. Some demons don't go out except by prayer and fasting. Maybe a Pharisee told you, you need to fast more often. Praise the Lord, that actually worked. That doesn't justify the whole definition of what the Pharisees are. I'm trying to say we need to distinguish between that beautiful movement and, and change, and if I may say, the consumption of the Spirit, you know, where, where the Spirit enters into your soul. Even 1 Corinthians 12 talks about we drink of one Spirit. We have to distinguish between drinking in of the Spirit of God and drinking in the religious nonsense of non-sanctified self. And I'm trying to say in this study that one way you can detect the difference is whether you substantially remain sober. You know, you can be leaping for joy. You can be prophesying. You can be praying for the sick and casting out demons. You can be laughing and crying and still be sober. You really can. You can still be spiritual. But there are those that cannot cease from sin, the Bible tells us. I want to give you a couple more examples before we close up this particular study and take up the remainder for a subsequent study. I want to remind you of what Micah says. Micah the prophet Micah in chapter 2, verse 1, says, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hands. At least that's what they think. You see, this is coordinated, I trust you see, with what is said in Isaiah 5, in verse 11. Woe to them that rise up early in their bed, to literally follow strong drink. They are so addicted to strong drink. This is such a character trait, such a personality dimension, that as soon as they wake up, they're reaching for it. And Micah is saying, woe to those people, not now reaching necessarily for drink, but they're devising iniquity while they're on their bed. They're thinking and scheming and all wrapped up in their plans while they're in bed. That ought to provide for all of us a source of discernment. 
maybe you need to search your own heart, male or female. Is it the case that the first thing that comes to your attention when you wake up is various relationship problems? And the way it comes to your heart is not praying for that person or just yielding it up to God or just dying out and saying the Lord will take care of it. Do you wake up and reach for that intoxication thinking that person may not acknowledge me today. My wife might try to disobey me or manipulate me or my children might not give me the respect or my dog might not get out of my way. And you start thinking and scheming about how you're going to make yourself known and felt and needed in this particular day. Again, as Micah says, when morning is light, because they've already been thinking and musing and working this all out, they get up and the first thing they do is they start practicing it. Maybe they make a phone call. Maybe they write a letter. Maybe they say, honey, we got to talk. Maybe they kick the dog on the way down the hallway. Whatever it is. What I'm trying to say is you've already figured out where you stand in the world. And the world better figure it out too or they're going to have to deal with the consequences. That's not sober. If you find yourself doing that while you're in bed, you're addicted. You need to put off this attention. Get away from yourself. Love doesn't do that. The Bible says love does not behave itself unseemly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't think evil. It's not rejoicing in schemes. It rejoices in the truth. It wakes up and it thinks, does my wife embrace the truth? Yes, she does. Praise the Lord Jesus. It wakes up and thinks, do I believe that God will save my children? Yes, I do. Praise the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. It wakes up and thinks, does my pastor teach the Word of God? Yes, he does. Praise the Lord Jesus. And then it gets up and just prays that the Lord will bless all these people and help all of us to serve His kingdom. And what else can we do for you, Lord? We're unprofitable servants even when we've done everything. There's nothing great about us. Love doesn't behave itself unseemly. It isn't planning and scheming. But drunken people do. And those who aren't yielding to the sobering, deeper work of the Spirit of God, whereby He takes us away from the intoxication of self, He puts us on the altar, and He drains that blood right out of us. You feel like I'm dying. I've been there. If you haven't been there, maybe you weren't as self-centered as me. Maybe you didn't have as deep addictions in certain ways as I did. But I know the experience of very palpably feeling like I'm dying. The life that meant so much to me in one dimension or another, it's just dying out of me. But brothers and sisters, if you're going to be a sober man or woman of God, you've got to get that fermented blood out of your soul. And in this case, I agree we shouldn't be taking blood transfusions. Not that I'm a Jehovah Witness, but I wouldn't be doing that. But what I'm saying in this case, we need, spiritually speaking, the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That blood that deserves all the glory and serves the Father and seeketh not its own, does not behave itself unseemly. Hallelujah. Well, my dear brethren, I'm mindful of the time and... I am thereby instructed to put a pause at this point. As the Lord allows, 
when we return to this study. Perhaps we will do so next Sunday. We'll see what the Lord has. I've tended to teach these teachings on what we call communion Sundays, and today is one of them. We could have communion again next Sunday. We don't have like a scheduled time for our commemoration of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ through the emblems of bread and the fruit of the vine. But when we return to these studies, we will most likely take up some examples of biblical pictures where men did rise up to drink. And we'll see what that all looked like so that we can continue to instruct our souls along these lines. Why don't you stand with me? May the Lord bless the word to your hearts as we prepare ourselves for remembering the Lord's death.